You're listening to L&D in Action, winning strategies from learning leaders. This podcast, presented by Get Abstract, brings together the brightest minds in learning and development to discuss the best strategies for fostering employee engagement, maximizing potential, and building a culture of learning in your organization. This week, I speak with Egla Vinoskaita. Egla is co-author of AI in L&D, The State of Play. This report, co-authored by Donald Taylor and presented as a component of his Global Sentiment Survey, takes a deep dive into the presence of artificial intelligence in our L&D systems and processes, and looks at the responses to such interventions among practitioners. Egla currently serves as learning strategist and director at Nodes. Since earning her master's in human development and psychology from Harvard, she has served as a learning consultant and advisor, instructional designer, and educational advocate at no fewer than 15 different organizations. In 2020, Egla was named the Learning Awards Rising Star Award Gold Winner. In this conversation, we focus largely on the AI and L&D report, which was sponsored by GetAbstract. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to L&D in Action. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, and today I'm speaking with Egla Vinuskaita. Egla, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. You are the co-author of the AI and L&D, the State of Play report with Donald Taylor. I've had him on the show previously. He was one of my earlier guests. We discussed his global sentiment survey and a handful of other things. But I've looked up your work and the things that you've done, and I decided that I think you're a more valuable person to speak to about this specific report. Don't tell him I said that. But I'm very happy to have you on to go over some of the findings that you guys have come up with and kind of see where we're at right now, because I went to DevLearn earlier this year, and I also went to ATD. I've been to a lot of events where you have a lot of vendors, a lot of people talking about AI. There's a lot of vendors who seem to be putting AI into their products. There's a lot of individuals working in L&D, learning design folks, and even leadership type people in learning who are looking for something. For a long time, it felt like people were looking for something that was really going to make a big change in their organization that comes from artificial intelligence. There are those who kind of have a good idea where they're at, and it really feels like this report kind of puts that into perspective in a really effective way. So thank you for the work that you've done on this, first of all. And I would like to start off just by asking, as a co-author of the report, was there a specific finding or piece of insight that surprised you the most? Oh, the one that definitely surprised me was how many organizations are not using AI in L&D. And the number, well, the percentage was around 40%, which is a lot, given that it's been a year since uh, ChatGPT was first released and AI has been everywhere, super prominent in, in conferences, in articles, on LinkedIn, social media and so on. So a huge chunk of those respondents said that they had experimented with AI, but they hadn't implemented anything, which for me raises uh, the question of why, what happened? Was it the lack of knowledge about how to make a business case, lack of skills to use AI and to draw value from it? Was it uh, the lack of trust in the technology itself? Were these some sort of organizational constraints? So yeah, that's definitely what surprised me the most and what makes me want to dig deeper into that. Yeah. And so you actually do list three classes of barriers as to the things that are making this difficult for organizations. We are going to dive into those at some point for what it's worth. So I think we'll come back around to it after we talk about some of the important findings that I discovered. But for some context and some clarity, would you mind just kind of describing how the survey was done? How many people, kind of who you reached out to and how you ultimately collected the data? So we had uh, 185 respondents 
people from L&D. We reach them through our collective LinkedIn networks, as well as emailing them and sending out a newsletter asking for responses. And we had a good selection of people, both on the vendor side, as well as internal L&Ds across seniorities from more junior level or more specialist level people to senior leaders. We also had a few charities represented as well. So it was a good spread across the industry. Yeah, I I think one of the important things that I noticed is how you sort of demarcate who is responding to what. So you don't just give like, you know, this is the most common response from this multiple choice question, but you say this is the most common response from key role players and from non-key role players, from other people in L&D. And if you don't mind, if you can recall, what were the ways that you actually broke it down and looked at individuals differently? And also, I think in some cases, it was organizational versus freelancers, that sort of thing. Can you elaborate on those distinctions that you made a little bit? Yeah, so not just freelancers, but vendors as well. So one breakdown was whether you were in-house or whether you provide services for L&D. So that's one breakdown because obviously motivations as well as imperatives to use AI might be different. If you are a vendor, for example, an e-learning provider for you to take up and use AI, it's a bit of a no-brainer in comparison to someone who works at a large organization with very complicated decision-making processes and perhaps less at stake when it comes to creating content past. So that was one. Another breakdown we had was key decision makers, so senior level people versus, say, specialist, uh, designer level people. Because, again, generally speaking, the conversation about AI and L&D, it's happening at various levels. So it's everywhere from how do I script something to how do I create a skills-based organization enabled by AI. So it was important to see what matters to various levels of people, how that differs so that we can have some nuance in our analysis. Yeah, that was very eye-opening for me to see those delineations, and I will get into why shortly. I want to start off with the where are we now question component of the report, which is sort of like the first thing that we address. And you already alluded to that by saying that, you know, most people, I think it was 40% are saying that they haven't really done anything yet, that they haven't integrated any AI tools. There are It looks like six responses from the question, how would you describe your progress in using AI in workplace L&D? And it's degrees of how integrated the AI is, is where those six responses go. It's from no intention to it's already sort of extensively integrated into work. And the two most common responses, AI is integrated into some parts of our work. That's actually the most common response at... 35%. So that's actually pretty high up there. And then the second most common response is one of those in that no category, which is experimenting, but not implementing. So just to give some of the clear numbers, hopefully paint a picture for the listeners. That's interesting to me because in between those two things is piloting and testing. So actually sort of integrated at a pilot level. And then of course, there's also the sort of extensively integrated option that's at the top level of that. But these two options around like the high 20s to 30%, to me almost indicate like organizational capacity. And I could just be fictionalizing this, but I'm, I'm curious if I'm seeing something here because when I think of something as serious as implementation of AI, it's something that takes a good amount of research. You have to have the resources to be able to not only identify what types of tools make the most sense for your organization, but you have to be able to test it safely, put budget into that. And I think of large organizations with you know substantial budgets as pretty 
easily capable of this sort of thing. But when you get into smaller and even medium organizations where budget is limited, sometimes the capacity to actually assess and determine what could really help us from this burgeoning novel technology is also much more complicated. And to me, that's why like piloting and testing might not be as prominent because even those organizations don't really have the capacity sometimes in people to actually put something into work if they don't really feel very strongly that it's going to end up working out because it could be an inefficient or budget costly type endeavor. So the experimenting but not implementing phase seems like what those organizations are getting into. Piloting and testing is kind of a step beyond that. And my prediction is that a lot of large organizations, they probably have budget to not really have to worry too deeply about their piloting and testing. And they can actually just kind of start with some tools that have, you know, good social proof, that have good data behind them and that they feel confident with. And in some cases, I feel like they have people who can make strong assessments. Large organizations have more tech savvy people. They can say this is most likely to work. So what I'm seeing is just sort of a natural curve of organizational capacity. Again, I could be sort of fictionalizing this, but when I was speaking to people at these live events and, you know, on this show in the past and just my guests and the L&D people that I meet, it does seem like Certain organizations are just much more capable than others of pulling in technology quickly and throwing it in there. It's still something that ends up being in, you know, some parts of the work as opposed to extensively integrated. But it does seem like there's a curve of organizational capacity. Am I sort of in line with this based on what you've seen? What do you think? What really resulted in the distribution of these answers? Yeah, so it's difficult for me to say and to draw any conclusions like that based on our survey because the sample was too small to explore the reasons behind, and we didn't ask, frankly, the questions to actually do that justice. But I think you're on to something when it comes to organizational capacity. I just would not necessarily say that the distinction is large versus small organizations, for example. Obviously, budget is a huge thing, but it's not just that. But speaking from my personal observations over the last year, I would say that different sized organizations face different challenges. For example, Large organizations may be able to afford AI, but their decision-making processes are much longer. And they are often done at the strategic business level and not at the L&D level. They have uh, legal reviews. They have IT integration issues because their tech stack is just so huge and there are additional security requirements and things like that. And perhaps even a more pronounced fear of uh, reputational damage. So there are lots of potential headwinds there. And on the other hand, we have... ChatGPT and Claude, which are free, GPT-4, which is very affordable at a small scale. So smaller organizations, they're generally more nimble and perhaps more free to experiment and innovate as long as they don't use AI for confidential content. So they have things going for them as well. And there were a lot of very interesting applications that came out in our survey that were shared by people who are either consultants, uh, freelancers, or people working at consultancies, which are obviously not your multi-billion corporations. So I would say that budgets and organizational capability, they're definitely considerations, but it's a much more complex challenge than just the cost. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said before, we'll get into the barriers after we go into some of the specific responses that I thought were most interesting. So Most respondents expect faster creation of learning content to be the biggest benefit of AI in their organizations or, you know, in L&D. I do think that there are a couple of directions that this response represents, faster creation of learning content. 
But to be more clear, you guys asked the question, you know, what will the greatest benefit be? I believe it was a multiple choice question and there were about six or seven. I'll talk about some of the others as well. But that faster creation of learning content was the predicted or observed biggest benefit overall by the entire population of responses. There are some notes there that we'll probably get into as well, like key role players versus others. But that seemed to be the most popular answer. And I think of a few things, improved accessibility of knowledge and info and synthesis thereof is something that can result in faster creation of content. If you have some sort of a librarian type AI, or if you have some sort of search improvement tool that can get you to better knowledge faster, I think that helps with this sort of thing, with content creation, course creation. I think you can also have something like ChatGPT create scripts for you and simplify information into course formatted content. And I think that both of those things have risks. I think that sometimes people want to abbreviate the logistical parts of their work and, you know, make things move faster from this is knowledge that I've gathered to it is now a presentable piece of some sort. It's now a presentable asset, whether that's a course or a piece of content that goes live on the internet for marketing or something like that. Generative AI has made people, you know, make things faster. And I think in a lot of cases, it's shown itself to be a little bit dangerous in the current state, at least, you know, early chat GPT, that sort of thing. But also just finding the information and using AI to synthesize maybe more quickly. There are probably some steps that might be eliminated, like using certain kinds of subject matter experts, creating the content with SMEs, you know, is something that could be simplified or expedited perhaps. But anyway, I see some risks here and I'm sure the people that are responding to this question in that way also are somewhat aware of the risks, but I just want to go over this. I do agree that there are some risks with increased speed of content creation. And what are the things that we should also watch out for from your perspective? Yeah, when it comes to risks, definitely. And we have some commonly understood risks that we've been talking about for at least the last half a year. So the first one being the quality of outputs, text outputs, video, audio outputs, especially in non-English languages. And when it comes to working with the specialized content, so there is that. The other one is uh, quality of sources. So asking the question, is the information AI is trained on, is the information that AI is drawing from, is it accurate? Because checking the content came up as one of the blockers to using AI is just frankly too time consuming to check that the content is accurate, it's written in the way it was supposed to be written. And for a lot of people it just made the whole use of AI not worth it. Another related consideration and risk is potential copyright infringement. This is something that does come up quite often among uh, larger organizations. So yeah, so these are your, I'll say, everyday risks. But just as you were saying that exactly is creating faster content always the right thing? I love this question. And there are a few things to add here. It's like the first is the risk of outsourcing too much to AI. And I would say that don't leave AI to do the entire job, guide it and QA it and know what good looks like. Because for example, right now, we have the ability to script videos really fast, but that doesn't mean that you should do an entire hour-long synthetic video course. It's just an awful user experience. So you really need to know what you're doing, what you're asking AI to do, and just not get too crazy with it. And more broadly, a major risk that I see is focusing too much on content creation in the first place. 
because the faster horse analogy has had a real uh, renaissance in the past year. I would say that we can create things faster, but are we creating the right things, which I think is something that you were also talking about. Yeah. I mean, synthetic video is something that I've seen. I think you're probably referring to like Synthesia, AI, and similar tools where, you know, we can make avatars of ourselves that are very lifelike and, and sort of make courses like that. And that's a good way to not have to summon a subject matter expert for, you know, two days of eight hours of shooting for a long form course. You can summon them for about an hour and, you know, get that job done by just having them record their face and voice and then putting a script into AI and then something comparable to that person actually creating a live recorded course can then be given to learners. And there's a question of quality. There's a question of efficiency and budget and, you know, how much it actually saves and helps. But just to look on the positive end of all of this as well, what are some other examples, if you have any, of expedited course creation from sort of like the free form answers that you saw in the report that you received? Was there anything else that was notable about how people are actually creating or sourcing or developing content faster? I mean, sourcing, creating, designing, developing, there were a lot of answers, over a hundred of them. So it's difficult to sort of give you a standout because obviously there were some really nifty examples of, okay, I need to upskill myself on some sort of subject matter. So instead of asking AI to just give me what I need to know about like a framework or technique related to this topic, I use AI as a conversation partner to better understand the nuance behind it. So things like that, or for example, one thing that I saw that, oh, that's an interesting idea, was integrating AI into, I think it was Adapt, the authoring tool, so that you can answer as a free text entry to whatever question that didn't go into too much detail of uh, what it actually looked like. But pretty much instead of giving this templatized feedback to everyone, they integrated AI in the background so that it generates feedback based on your answers, which I think is a really simple, but if used well, a really powerful use of AI beyond just actual content creation of script me a video, that sort of thing. Yeah, that sort of integration is really interesting. Personalization of learning was the most expected benefit among key role players, key role L&D respondents, so those who are sort of like higher on the decision-making totem pole, perhaps, and in leadership roles. I want to spend some time with that. There's a handful of ways that adaptation and personalization have been introduced over time. Did you get a sense of, you know, what those were? Are you familiar with those things yourself? I just want to talk a little bit about that option as well. Yeah, so I think that when they were answering that question, what they meant were third-party curation and adaptive learning tools. So, you know, the tools that assess your knowledge and serve or adaptively create content based on your knowledge gaps or your interests, your goals, and so on. So when they were answering that question, I would assume that's what they had in mind. Lots of organizations do some version of that, especially since content curation has become part of many LMSs. But myself, I personally view personalization as a larger topic beyond curation and adaptive learning. Another thing I consider to be a flavor of personalization is co-pilots and assistants for eternal knowledge management, where I ask a question and the assistant gives me a contextual answer based on company's internal data wherever it's stored. So how to book a holiday, what services are most suitable for this particular client, which 
personalizes your experience. It really does help for you to perform in your work in a customized way. So I find these applications very intriguing. A few respondents were experimenting with this at the time of the survey. None in our survey had deployed it at scale. And outside of a report, I'm getting a sense that many are spooked by the data privacy and accuracy implications of such assistance. And I think that they're waiting for first movers to show the way, to thread the path. For first movers <laughs> to suffer before they jump into the pool themselves. Exactly. Make all the mistakes, make the headlines, and yeah, learn from their mistakes. And then there's this third flavor of personalization, which is skill development simulations. For example, AI coaches were conversation bots. And why do I consider them to be personalization? That's because when you say something in your natural language, they give you feedback and respond to you based exactly on what you said, picking up your mistakes, your style of language, your context that you presented in your answer, which is when you think about what is personalized learning, that's exactly what that is. So that's a step change from multiple choice e-learning scenarios that we have had so far. So yeah, that's personalization for me. Then there are a handful of other answers in that question. You know, what are the expected benefits of using AI and L&D? Improving efficiency and reducing costs is also a big one, actually very close to first place. But I think a lot of people kind of understand where that might come from. I would like to hear if you have any great examples of that. But other interesting options that had less respondents, fewer respondents, facilitating information discovery, providing extra skills practice, identifying skills, providing extra knowledge testing. So these are things that you've already alluded to, I think, but, you know, having some sort of a coach in that. Any other interesting free text responses that revealed anything here that you can recall that you'd like to address? Oh, yeah. One example that comes to mind is using AI to generate future capabilities. So if you take a detailed industries, what they call future state report, a detailed report including supply chain partners, stakeholders, technologies involved in what that future state of the industry is going to look like, and ask AI to generate a set of capabilities and then align that AI-generated set to your existing database, find gaps, ask AI to fill these skill gaps on the list and so on. So the final list was obviously checked by a human, but the respondent reported that 90% of capabilities in the final set were AI-written and they required minimal adaptation. So I think that's a really interesting way of using AI especially in the context of uh, skills-based organizations where the discussion is going these days. Yeah, that's really fascinating. 90% is an encouraging number. There's also mention in one of the notes that you made as the authors, using AI to scan internal knowledge resources to help contextualize learning. I'm curious if you think that these efforts are likely to stack on top of each other where existing learning experiences pull in things from those knowledge resources and result in future learnings, they result in some sort of lesson, and then that itself becomes a lesson, kind of like, you know, precedent, legal precedent, historical precedent within an organization's library, that sort of thing. I think of McKinsey's Lilly, which was announced, I think, back in August of last year or something like that. It sounds a lot like a librarian that just pulls from their, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases that they've successfully or unsuccessfully done. So you know, just kind of scanning through everything like Google and looking for the right keywords, pulling out, you know, evidence and tactics and whatever it is from 
specific cases, specific accounts, and then, you know, giving that as a learning resource, you know, oh, you're working on something in this world, in this industry, here's what we've done here, here are some specific examples that you might want to read up on to understand, you know, what kind of tactics you could use in this case. Do you think that other kinds of companies outside of, you know, this sort of like big consultation and those who can like essentially develop their own tool, do you think they'll be able to achieve this with maybe different kinds of data sets as well? Is this something that more and more companies are going to have, like a sort of an AI librarian that pulls on their knowledge resources and helps people learn using those internal things? I think we need to be discerning in terms of what kind of content lends itself to such applications and in what context, because there are a few questions that you need to ask yourself as an organization. First, do you need that content to always be accurate? Because AI has a inbuilt and the way it works, there is always a margin for error. And the second one is, do you intend to keep the human in the loop? And a librarian is a good use case because what it does, it pulls up resources and excerpts that might be useful for you, perhaps to support your learning, to give you examples, to give you scenarios that you can consider, or even uh, clarifications like a virtual teaching assistant. But you, as a human in the loop, you take it from there, right? So when it comes to McKinsey case studies, it is, I guess, a more advanced version of what you've always been able to do is just a really supercharged search. At the core of it, obviously, it's much more sophisticated. Now, content creators and repositories have been playing around with this already. But in short, if getting something wrong isn't the end of the world and the human is an active participant regardless, there are meaningful and impactful cases of using AI in LND for this, like a librarian of sorts. Now, if you need AI to serve you complete, highly technical and precise procedures that you intend to use outright, the probability for error that AI inevitably introduces, however small, might be too high. For example, for drug prescription or legal cases, that sort of content. So I think it's about understanding the limitations and the risks and whether your context calls for it. And in very many cases, a human needs to be present to actually double check, okay, so what exactly does this case say? I actually have to read it in full to understand the nuance and don't just trust what's being served to me. Yeah. Ultimately, though, I think it's really important to think, will AI simplify organizational capacity to preserve knowledge in an effective manner? So I've seen plenty of organizations that as they sort of make their digital transformation, one thing that they didn't quite think of is the ability that that gives them to just record all that their employees know about the minutia of their jobs, but also about the industry and the work that they're doing collaboratively with others and with partners and that sort of thing. You know, digitizing everything really increases the capacity for knowledge preservation and utilization. And I see what you're saying about just, you know, having a human involved there. But my initial thought about like, can this stack that knowledge? If we do find a way to more or less accurately pull the resources that make the most sense in different cases, do you think that's a noble goal for us to strive for is to have a librarian that can in fact do that and to use AI for knowledge preservation? Do you see those things as primary goals of AI in the near or deeper future? I think this is definitely a noble goal to strive for. But right now, it is about figuring out the details of how that is going to work in a way that actually achieves the purpose and doesn't put the organization in hot water. 
So as of now, you do think that's probably more risky than it is a good idea overall? I mean, as an industry right now, we are in a situation where everyone is experimenting. And that's the thing. McKinsey, what they're doing, it is a good experiment to see how it works and to see what the limitations of that are and how to use it, because they are not doing anything for the end user who's relying on the accuracy of their librarian to perform a job with very high stakes. So that's a great use case. And it is about various organizations seeing how they can make that work in their context. And some are going to benefit greatly from it. Yeah, I mean, I like McKinsey as a first mover in this case that, you know, we'll see how that goes. They have a lot of data. So I I think that's going to be a good case study if and when we can observe how it has worked. I'm not sure how much data they'll be willing to reveal because it is an internal tool. But I'm sure that with their position in the market as a consultative global leader, they will probably hope to you know, share some things that demonstrate not only what happened here, but their prowess in that space with AI and everything. So I guess we'll kind of see if they report on that. So let's get into the barriers then, the things that make it hard to adopt AI. There are three categories that you go over, three classes of barriers, technology, business, and individual. Do any of these stand out as the most common? Is there anything that really felt like it was most commonly referred to or free text described, that sort of thing? So there were standouts within categories. So, for example, within technology, data privacy was definitely at the top, sharing proprietary or sensitive data with AI tools that was coming across really clearly. And that's been the case for the last year in most of the conversations that I've had with learning leaders. Among business blockers, I would say for large companies, it's compliance. In some cases, it's outright restriction when it comes to AI tools, but in other cases, it's just a a lack of clarity about what is acceptable that prevents people from actually using and and trying to imagine how they can apply these tools in their work. And for smaller companies, it was often the cost of time to proficiency with AI. So something that we talked about in the beginning, which is about even if you can access, if you can afford the licenses for AI, it is about getting to a point where the AI output is worth the effort It doesn't require as much editing, as much checking, and it results in time savings. So there is that. And at the individual level, it's simply trust. Trust in AI sources, trust in AI's outputs, even trust in in that AI is going to keep the data safe, which strongly relates to what I just talked about when it comes to technology barriers. So I would say these are the standouts. When you talk about compliance, is that also trust-based, you know, from like an IT perspective, is compliance generally like the IT folks, they make the decisions as to what kinds of tools need to be included or what kind of tools are safe for an organization. And there still is like a lack of trust and a knowledge that data privacy is not fully secure at this point. When you say compliance, what exactly do you mean there? Yeah. So in the survey, what you're talking about was a different category. It's related. It's also another one of the business blockers, which is related to IT. But when I say compliance, I mean just organizational or industry regulations about whether we can use AI and how we can use AI. When it comes to blockers, there were either restrictions and saying that as the organization, either we decided that we're not deploying it right now, or we're going through a process to decide whether we're doing that. But in the meantime, you cannot use it on your own devices. We're not creating you like instances of GPT. 
or it's the organization not communicating that at all and people are being like okay so what are we allowed to do i don't want to get in trouble i don't want to embarrass myself and the organization okay so let's back up then and maybe define ai a little bit because in the report there is a brief note about the saturation of the term which i think we've all experienced at this point i mentioned the conferences that i went to if you've been on linkedin for even five minutes in the past year you've probably seen a dozen people posting about their thoughts on ai and in some cases like you know how they're using ai and what they're doing maybe with chat gpt or a bigger tool it has gotten the seo treatment it has been hyped up it has been utilized the term ai and artificial intelligence they've both been utilized as a way to create brands you know it's so hot right now that people are just sort of grabbing at the bit i think it's slowed down but for a while people were grabbing at the bit to utilize that to further their own platform and to further their own product or whatever it is and it was mentioned in the report that people are seeing it among vendors basically everywhere and it's really started to obfuscate what ai actually means and what it actually is and which tools are truly utilizing ai this happened to me very seriously when i went to atd it just felt like every booth was like hey artificial intelligence now and you could tell that not all of it was like a serious application and in some cases it didn't feel like artificial intelligence at all so how do we address this the issue of hype and oversaturation and obfuscation of the definition of ai and what frameworks can we actually use to identify what truly is artificial intelligence Josh Burson has proposed three categories for AI solutions in HR, which I find quite useful and uh, helping me think about and um, sort of categorize, okay, see this thing, what kind of AI is it, if it is AI? So the, his three categories are added on AI, built in AI, and built on AI. So if you think about AI that's added on, you can think of some application which has some generative AI that helps you create a title for your post or some image or to generate some content. So you, you know what I'm talking about right now. A lot of applications have this sort of thing where this uh, little magic wand that you click and it suggests some content for you. So that's what he calls AI, which is added on. So the other one, the AI that is built in, we can think about it as something like content recommendations, where the engine helps you recommend content. So that's an example of built-in AI. And applications that are built on AI, so like AI-native applications, they are the latest generation. If you think about some talent platforms, especially the ones that are operating in this SBO-related, skills-based organization-related field, which are built on advanced AI models. And they do things like they create a workforce graph and they allocate skills to where they're needed in the organization. So the entire application is just built on AI. So like workforce intelligence and talent intelligence platforms, those sorts of things. Yeah. So he has some examples here. Applications such as Eightfold AI, Glowed, Beamery, Seekout, as uh, built on AI, sort of AI native applications. And I think... When you were talking about your conference experience, this is something that I share as well. One spurious claim that some vendors make is that they are powered by AI, but it's actually just a little algorithm that doesn't learn itself. It's just an algorithm. Or even more often, they use AI, but they use it in the most rudimentary way. So kind of technically, yes. So for example, they integrate generative AI to generate draft content on a topic without much fine-tuning and pretty much do the same thing that you would be able to do just using your good old ChatGPT yourself. 
and some vendors don't even have in-house machine learning expertise. But the way they are positioning their product, they make it sound like some other vendors that have worked with a team of machine learning engineers for a decade on proprietary models. And these are not the same. But I think because of the hype, vendors, they are forced to be noticed, as you say, is SEO issue to be noticed, they have to put AI in their name because they're just going to be overlooked. Maybe sometimes through gritted teeth, I would imagine, because suddenly a lot of products just change their slogans. And when it comes to hype, I think it all comes down to buyers, meaning internal L&D professionals, educating themselves to be able to discern what type of AI or what kind of application and depth of AI a vendor is talking about. On top of that, obviously, you can collaborate with your IT team or hire professionals to advise you. Obviously, these are not mutually exclusive, but I think there is no going around the fact that you just need to know what kind of products you're buying. The powered by AI thing, I've definitely seen that a handful of times, and I can just like see the marketing team in a Zoom meeting like, how do we convey this to the customer? What's the verb that we use in our new slogan? And I just know that they were thinking exactly what you just described. You know, powered by doesn't sound like it's really true, but it doesn't actually make any claims about the strength or degree to which this is a proprietary algorithm. So powered is a perfect word. I, I can just like see that happening in those marketing meetings. And I saw that myself and my first thought was like, yeah, but like, what does powered mean? You know, so I get what you're saying there. The report also includes this common statement about evaluation data. It's very hard to determine an ROI in L&D. In, in this case, you guys describe, you know, good evaluation data, strong evaluation data for learning solutions as just generally hard to come by. And AI, it has limited capability to address that right now outside of drawing some insights from, you know, a large swath of open-ended questions and a couple other small things. Do you think this is a function that will expand and make that evaluation data better just by virtue of how we can actually look at open-ended responses and then have AI pick out keywords and really synthesize that data? Can we expect better data analysis just as AI grows or does that come from the learning design itself? What do you think we have to do there? When it comes to AI in learning and learning measurement, I think people generally have expectations that are way too high. They think that AI is going to be like magic, that it's just going to come in and finally we have all our ROIs. But the thing is that measurement goes beyond learning design. Good evaluation starts with good data, period. AI can analyze data sets impressively well, but you need good data in the first place. And I would say that impact measurement starts not with AI, but with L&D asking different questions. So how do we connect our work with the business? What performance indicators are we moving? Do we even know what KPIs people that we're serving care about? How do we get access to that? How do we automate that access, perhaps integrate those databases so we can measure and iterate often? So when you think about it from that perspective, AI is but a workhorse for the last mile. Now, at the more granular learning design level, continuous measurement in learning design has been possible for a long time, much like with website analytics, even before AI. Again, it's more a matter of intent and forethought than the advent of generative AI. And it's called data-informed learning design. And someone like Laurie Niles Hoffman has been talking about that for years. Great. Okay. 
We're running up on time a little bit, so I do want to ask you before I let you go about the next steps section at the end of the report, because you guys did something really cool, which is you don't just give the information and say, hey, go do your best with what we have here. You give a little slide on where to start, what comes next, and also a bunch of resources, which is really nice too. Just I'm wondering if the Josh Person thing is in there, but there's a handful of things for sort of keeping up what's going on, or if you're beginning with AI, you know, what can you read and go through? So I'd love to, if you don't mind, look at the next steps. So you talk about, first of all, understanding where you are, identifying your goals with AI, as you just sort of mentioned, and then finding your own use cases for AI. So, you know, wherever you would like to start within that, if you could give some sage words of advice for our listeners. Yeah. So here I will start by saying that if it was even half a year ago, the advice would have been experiment with ChatGPT, keep an eye on what's going on, sort of get yourself comfortable, play around. But now I think it's time to adopt a more structured and focused approach, especially in 2024, now that this is where things are getting real. So yeah, the three steps, understand where you are, identify your goals with AI, and find your own use cases. The first one is about doing an audit of the systems and the tools that you have in place. Some of them may already have AI integrated. Mapping out your key processes, understanding and mapping out the skills in your team perhaps asking them about the experiments that they have already done using AI, even outside of work. Maybe they have some ideas or some examples that they can share with the wider team. And obviously looking at the and clarifying use policies in your organization. So that's the first step, just taking stock of where you are as your team, as your organization. The second one is identifying your goals with AI, which is really not that hard because you already know what your most persistent challenges are in your flow of work. So you identify those challenges, you look at your KPIs, you prioritize them based on importance and value, and then you identify, looking at that map, you identify where AI can support you with these tasks. And after that, once you identify these little snippets, you set up simple experiments with a goal and success criteria, even as simple as, okay, so... I want to cut my whatever, whatever content production time in half. I'm going to be using AI for that specific process for a few weeks, and then we will reconvene and discuss the results, like something easy like that. And once you're done with that, the third step is finding your own use cases. And I know that a lot of organizations and individual professionals, they're looking for someone else to show them the way, as we've talked about, and work out the best practices. But as of right now, we don't have best practices yet. So I would say get together with your team to consider the use cases that might apply in your own work. Discuss what tools are proving useful to you. Perhaps speak with other departments in the company about how they have been using things. For example, people in marketing may have a lot to share that might help you in content development. And finally, experiment with how AI can help you address these key challenges, solve these case studies that you come up and do it in a perhaps structured way at least a few times. Perhaps a workshop, perhaps a challenge, perhaps a hackathon. Everyone's talking about hackathons, but uh, one interesting approach to that that I've seen is as a team setting a challenge that we are going to see how much we can push AI to achieve this goal, say for a month, completely asynchronously. And then after a month, we're getting together and see that, okay, so 
who solved it, who managed to conquer the challenge and to use AI in that way. So things like that that don't necessarily require two full days of hackathon to build something useful. And before I let you go, one last question here. I forgot that I actually I saw a quick video of yours on LinkedIn where you reminded everyone of the importance of motivation in this whole process. When it comes to learning, we still need to remember that motivation is largely internal. I mean, there's both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation sources, but the technology will never be enough on its own to get people to learn and to make them learn in a more engaged manner. At the end of the day, we still have to think about the sources of motivation. So I guess I would just quickly ask you, and don't feel like you have to go too deep on this, but do we always have to keep in mind the motivation from sort of a personnel relationship management leadership standpoint? Or do you actually see that AI might really make a play for motivating people to learn better just by, you know, the drastic improvement of quality of content and how it can identify what really excites us. What do you think about that? Oh, (laughs) you want a quick answer, huh? (laughs) Fundamentally, learning is a cognitively engaging and difficult activity. And content alone does not motivate you to learn. It might motivate you to have a look at, okay, so this looks like a cool video, or there might be that aspect, but ultimately AI creating some sort of shiny, amazing content is not, in my opinion, going to motivate people. We are still going back to the fundamentals of what is relevant to that person and using AI to shape the learning experience or to serve the resources or whatever to address that relevance, to address that pain point. And when it comes to organizational learning as well, even if you think about yourself, as I said, there's obviously a little inkling of, oh, this looks interesting. I'm going to have a look. But for you to dedicate the effort required to learn, you need to both feel that this is relevant for you. This is something that you need to do. And we like when someone else cares, when someone else cares about us and how we develop. So communicating that and showing us the way and supporting us in a human way, I think is still very important. Although I do see how at scale AI does help bring learning perhaps to more people. But I think the most quality learning is going to be done with human intervention. Absolutely. I agree. Okay. Well, Egla, thank you so much for joining me once again. This was a fantastic conversation. I think All that we've said today will probably change quite drastically in a matter of months and, you know, especially within a year and beyond. So I would love to have you on the show if there's another report that comes out or just to discuss the state of things once any new major interventions have taken place. So again, thank you. Before I let you go, can you just let our folks know where they can find you on the internet, where they can find the report and any other information that you'd like to share about your work and your brand? The best place to find me is LinkedIn, but I guess just look up the way you spell my name to find me. E-G-L-E-V-I-N-U-S-K-A-I-T-E. Is that it? Yes, yes. Just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Perfect. And the report is on Don Taylor's website, I believe, donaldhtaylor.co.uk. Yes, yes, that's the one. Okay, perfect. Again, thank you so much for joining me. And for everybody at home, thank you for joining us as well. We will catch you on the next episode. Cheers. You've been listening to L&D in Action, a show from Get Abstract. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player to make sure you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a rating, leave a comment, and share the episodes you love. Help us keep delivering the conversations that turn learning into action. Until next time.